Hi, this is Kalia Colston. And I'm Dylan Bird. And this is the podcast of Triple R's The Grapevine, a weekly current affairs radio show putting local issues in a global context. Broadcast live on Triple R from Melbourne, Australia, every Monday. Hope you enjoy the podcast. And if you have any feedback or would like to connect, hit us up via the Triple R website. It seems hardly anyone is getting what they need or want when it comes to housing in Melbourne. It's expensive, both to rent and buy. There's not enough of it in places people want or need to live. And for those building out to the urban fringe, infrastructure isn't keeping up, which is leading to all sorts of issues. Infrastructure Victoria, which is the independent agency that sets out Melbourne's 30-year strategy for infrastructure, says more housing diversity is the answer. Uh, To a large extent, that means more family-friendly apartments and townhouses houses in established suburbs. Uh, Professor Dave Nichols pops by Triple R about once a month and talks to us. He's senior lecturer in urban planning at the University of Melbourne. And Dave, do you agree? Family-friendly apartments and townhouses are, well, are the yeah. answer or part of the answer? Yeah. Hi, both of you. Um, I, uh, I I guess I do, in, in a manner of speaking, agree uh, for, for what that's worth. Um, I think this Infrastructure Victoria report is really... Um, it's an, it's an interesting read and it's an interesting set of propositions. You know, Infrastructure Victoria is really just, not not just, but is really an advisory body. So they don't, mm-hmm. you know, despite the name, they don't actually, you know, then set about creating the infrastructure or anything like that. They're, they're reporting and, and coming up with, with ideas. Uh, they... Um, they certainly, um, you know, hit that uh, hit that spot when they they find a, a they've found a place in uh, the existing city that they they see as, I guess, ripe for redevelopment. And you hear this from other quarters as well. Um, I have a PhD student, for instance, who is looking at um, heritage values in the Middle Ring suburbs, whose informants have told her that. Oh, you know, heritage is all very nice. It's nice to preserve the middle ring suburbs, but actually, what what needs to be done is these places need to be subdivided for, um, you know, the next the next generation bracket s bracket. So I guess there's, um, you know, in some ways there's kind of a, I think there's a kind of a mood in the air for this as well that there's a, and when you look at places like, for instance, um, Hawthorne, where where I grew up, I mean, those sorts of places they are densifying. Um, yeah, there's lots of apartments there. Amazingly, so um, there's uh, you know I think there's there's something to be said for that as an idea. So the the idea basically is, uh, as according to the the Infrastructure Victoria report, is that um, you know we've got to stop uh, continually adding to the outskirts of Melbourne, and you know just like adding a few whatever square kilometres every year of, around the edge and um, the, those greenfield suburbs as they as they tend to be known they. There's a problem with um, access to work or, you know, easy access to work. The commuting times are wretched and, um, you know, maybe it's time to um, to examine the, you know, those... So what we call middle ring suburbs, which I, I tend to think of with my historical bent, I tend to think of as uh, places that really only saw substantial development after the Second World War, um, probably starting at around Hawthorne, Camberwell and, and, and going... Um, out from there or if you go in the other direction, starting, you know, um, Braybrook or whatever and going out that way. So um, where, um, you know, I think there's, there is a, there's a bit of a mood for that, yeah. And so how do you encourage those kinds of developments? Because I imagine for developers it might be 
more profitable to have kind of smaller one and two bedroom apartments built on a block that might be able to sell more off, for example, for a profit. So what is there in the report in terms of suggesting or, or proposing how to encourage the right kind of development to sustain those mm. population mm. growth? They're talking about, uh, I mean, they're, they, they identify some levers, some of which are policy things, uh, some of which are uh, about, uh, I guess, what you'd call kind of uh, taxes or levies on on sales, so the, the government, the state government, has the ability to encourage certain kinds of development by, um, you know, for instance, taking stamp duty mm. off some sales, or uh, you know, uh, getting rid of some um, first homeowners um, grants in in other situations that the government might think is not you know, not conducive to this kind of development. So there are those kinds of things, but I think also there's a there's a cultural change that can be applied in terms of uh, getting people to, uh, em- if not embrace, at least uh, en- uh, is encompass the word, or um, kind of um, you know consider the idea of uh, a, fa- a family-oriented apartment development or townhouse development. So, you know, the report doesn't necessarily go too far down this road because I think what most people think. I could be wrong. I should never say what most people think, but let's say there's a there's a common um, conception or a common understanding of like what a kid needs is a is a, a backyard to kick a footy around and you know that kind of stuff. But if you wanted to look for an apartment and you had multiple kids, I mean, one thing that was interesting in the infrastructure. Um, Victoria report, which I, I don't expect bodies like that to start talking about apartments that have baths in them, but these sort of basic things where enough bedrooms for a family group with things like a bath to allow people to bath children and, and those sorts of things. But a lot of people and the people I know that live in apartments, they're in two bedroom apartments to, if they're lucky, and those bedrooms are often very small. Mm. And so, you know, I, that the option to, to live in a more sizable apartment like what's common in Europe, for instance, doesn't necessarily seem to be there. It doesn't seem to be an option even if people wanted it. So It doesn't. Yeah. And I think even, you know, there's even at times in Greenfield suburbs, there's um, they there are sort of attempts to make a kind of, you know, what they call a sort of European-style townhouse or apartment development. But they usually are the sa- those same kinds of small dimensions those because they, they consider them only to be for... Uh, you know, single or, or you know, um, uh, dinky professionals. Like a couple with a study sort of thing exactly. rather than thinking that people exactly. are going to be bringing up a family in, in those exactly. circumstances. And, and one of the things that, like, you, you, I guess if you don't think about it too much, you sort of think, well, so people change, you know, families, family size changes over time. You know, you move out, you move back in, or, or those kinds of things, which is certainly what happened to my parents' generation. You move to the suburbs to have your children and move back in. Or, you know, for many of them, move back into the the inner city um, later in the piece uh, as empty nesters. But um, uh, as the report points out, you you pay a kind of tithe each time you you sell mm. and and buy. So you you know, which is a disincentive to changing your housing you know size, so to speak. You know, so a lot of people are living in houses that aren't really you know are too big for them or too small for them. As you mentioned, Infrastructure Victoria is kind of an advisory body. They don't sort of build stuff. How influential is it? Good question. I think in this instance, um, they have kind of hit, you know, a, a, a kind of um, – there's a it's a moment right now. And the, one of the reasons that I say that is that 
Um, right now, they ha- uh, you will have noticed in The Age this week, The Age has just started a series about where is Melbourne's second city yeah. going to be. I mean, don't start me. I know you weren't, you weren't going to. We weren't <laughs> going to talk about this, but um, every, every paragraph I read in, that, in yesterday's and today's report. Even that the, the possessive is Melbourne is funny. Oh, look, I'm just... <laughs> it's our city. <laughs> yeah. Second it's, one. It's just... It's, it's driving me. It's driving me crazy reading that stuff. But anyway, um, but the point being that there's once again a kind of a sense in which the the city as it stands is you know it's not um, it's not up to scratch, and there need to be some major rearrangements about our, I guess our underlying assumptions about the city to um, to make it a workable city, particularly with this this thing that we constantly hear um, that you know. Uh, by what is it? By twenty fifty or something, there'll be eight, oh, eight million eight people. Million people. Yeah. yeah. So um, there's, uh, you know, obviously the state government is doing some things towards getting, you know, the getting ready for that in the the suburban loop stuff and those those kinds of things. So I guess this is the next stage where infrastructure Victoria, you know, it might just be a um, a kind of you know a a voice in the state government's head amongst many other voices. Um, but I think in this instance it's uh, it's making a lot of sense. Yeah. Mm. Speaking with Dave Nichols, um, Professor of Urban Planning at the University of Melbourne, joins us roughly monthly on the show talking about urban sprawl and a report from Infrastructure Victoria about how to kind of encourage, I suppose, more family-friendly apartments and townhouses in Melbourne's suburbs. And when there are these large development proposals, I mean, Preston Market is an example of um, kind of a, an area sort of close-ish to the city, they can be really contentious and there can be a lot of pushback to attempts to sort of, whether it's compuls- compulsory acquiring properties or um, trying to put in place some changes to a certain area that might allow more people to move in, that can result in very lengthy delays through community opposition and that kind of thing. So if this were to be fast-tracked, if there were to be some incentives to build more um, kind of two, three-bedroom apartments and townhouses in certain locations, how easy would that be to actually make happen? Mm, mm. Well, you know, I mean, uh, if I could be philosophical for a second, I think there's, there is a, a mood for change and there is um, something that I don't know if you heard about a little thing called the Aston by-election, which I, it seemed to me to be whatever whatever the you know intrinsic or special kind of uh, situations were there. Uh, I think that there is a a mood right now. It's not just you know people like Albo or whatever. I think it's also people of a certain generation are kind of going, yeah, well, actually, we have we have had a good run, and and maybe it is time to start thinking about you know children and children's children kind of kind of stuff. So. You know, as per the informants that my PhD student had, people who are actually saying, you know, I love living in a, you know, in a big house and a big block of land, but, you know, um, for all kinds of reasons, you know, there are, there are kind of sort of broader social reasons. I think, oddly enough, it, it's, you know, and I'm, maybe you remind me, me of saying this in a few months, I'll say, I never said that, that's ridiculous as if. It's on the record now. <laughs> no, well, you haven't um, said it yet. You know, yeah, exactly. Come on, Dave. And, and you can make AI say anything, you know. So this, exactly. Um, uh, I think that uh, there is a kind of a, a, a spirit amongst certain, you know, the homeowners, the old, maybe baby boomers or maybe a little bit younger, uh, who are sort of, maybe thinking it is it's time to subdivide and and free up some of that space 
you know, what, uh, what the infrastructure, Victoria, of course they're called Infrastructure Victoria, so they're very interested in infrastructure, but they do, they do say, well, this is where the, um, this is the best place to build because the infrastructure is there, it has the capacity. Um, I actually personally, in brackets, think that maybe they're making a little too much of that, that it, probably a lot of it needs renewal, but whatever. Um, the infrastructure's there and uh, it's time to build around that and, you know, and boost the density in those particular areas. For that reason, I think there is at this point, uh, there is a kind of a, a sense that a lot of Melburnians uh, want, to, want to get on board with um, at least some of that. And also, of course, if you're told uh, your lovely... Uh, California bungalow is on a block of land that could house four families uh, instead of just one. You, you could sort of go, oh no, I love my California bungalow. You could go, wait, four, you know. So this could be worth, you know, four housing blocks, not mm. just one. Then uh, people might see a bit of uh, financial. Oh yeah, financial. There. And I, I think, I mean, one thing you know that in in the report we're referring to, they they, they research people, and this and one in four said, oh look, they would trade in a detached dwelling for a townhouse or apartment. But there was a special word in that sentence was quality townhouse or apartment. Oh, right. And we've been really plagued by poor quality apartments, it seems. And I wonder if that has turned people off. And and the other question I have, because I realise we're running out of time, but oh, two things at once. Um, you know, when it comes to infrastructure and renewal, and we know that we're not investing in the out, you know, people are doing without schools and medical centres and all sorts of things in the outer suburbs because it seems like the houses go first and those mm. kind of community facilities follow some time down the track. But in, you know, urban areas with populations growing, it's not like you get an extra swimming pool or anything. You're just sharing it with more people. Well, and I just correct. wonder... Um, it's all well and good to say these things, but what about those really important community facilities and, you know, quality mm. and also quantity, I yeah. guess? Yeah. No, that's that's right. I mean, there's there's a lot of, you know, I think in some ways it's it's easier to be blithe about, you know, all this stuff's here and, you know, <coughs> it has the capacity, you know, they have, it has capacity, people can use it. I mean, that's sort of untested. One thing that I do think, though, which is related to this uh, in, and which I think was a really a positive element of the Infrastructure Victoria report was they talk not just about Melbourne, they talk about um, Geelong and Ballarat as well as um, potential, you know, sort of the, the capacity for those places to grow as, um, I guess, adjunct cities. So not not the second cities of the age article, <laughs> which is kind of a little bit mental. But the, um, the you know, this idea of the, here, are some, here are established cities that have um, have all that kind of infrastructure that have um, traditionally, I suppose, you know, maybe up until the end of the last century, been in decline a little bit. So there's 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 all kinds of um, stuff there that that could be use, useful for um, growing populations in Victoria. And you know, it is it's infrastructure Victoria, not infrastructure Melbourne. Um, you know, they could they could even cast the net a bit wider, I think. But that's uh, that's an interesting element. One more thing that I just want to say, which relates to both the age article. I'm sorry to keep bringing it up, but I've just been reading it this morning and it's sort of um, plaguing me like a demon. Um, uh, one one other element of of that whole um, business has completely got out of my mind. 
We'll have to get you back next time to uh, pick uh, up can that. Can I thought. come back some other time? You can come and, back. Uh, go away and read the article again, and uh, it'll all be <laughs> over. By then. That's that's why I, you know, I wanted to I wanted to kind of drag it in uh, right now. God, you know, you just you, you preempt and preempt, and by the time you get to, through your preemption, you've uh, forgotten you what you were going to say. Next time we'll get the Dave Nichols AI bot in here because well, that's maybe that's what this is. Maybe that's what this is. Professor Dave. University of Melbourne, Senior Lecturer in Urban Planning. Triple R. There's been a lot of noise lately about prospective war between Australia and China. The Age and Sydney Morning Herald's Red Alert series, which warned of war within three years, attracted scathing criticism from a range of experts, with many pointing out its hyperbolic and racist framing of geopolitical tensions with our largest trading partner. Amid all this, Chinese-Australians' voices are seldom heard. New research out of University of Technology Sydney provides an important corrective to this and signals the dangers of anti-China rhetoric for social harmony and cohesion. Wanning Sun is Professor of Media and Cultural Studies at University of Technology Sydney and to talk about this research she joins us now live on the line. Uh, thanks so much for spending some time with us this morning on Triple R. Wanning, welcome. Good morning. Now, I mentioned the Red Alert series. Of course, that's not the only example of media reporting about China that's been criticised for being problematic. But I wonder if we can get your perspective on just the kind of messaging we've seen across our media landscape in recent weeks. Ah, yes. Uh, in recent weeks, it's probably not a, uh, enough uh, time span. Uh, in fact, I've been keeping a, a close eye on what our so-called mainstream media have been uh, um, talking about uh, in the space of Australian-China relationship and China uh, narrative for the last five or six years. And um, and uh, what I have um, sort of uh, um, discovered is that, that there is uh, a gradual, uh, um, but incremental but sure, gradual uh, sort of build-up of the so-called China narrative and China uh, threat narrative. And now the China threat narrative has become a very dominant discourse. And under this China uh, threat narrative, there is many sort of uh, issues and, and, and topics. And, uh, and as it happens, that the, 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 whether we're going to have a war uh, with China uh, has been the latest manifestation of this China sort of uh, threat narrative, but uh, this narrative has been around for about, you know, five or six years, and it's just got progressively more and uh, worse and worse, really. And, um, yeah, coming back to your question about this this issue about the uh, war, and there has been actually quite a bit of a speculation about whether China is going to go to war with the U.S. Uh, over Taiwan and what's Australia's role in this and, um, of course, the Red Alert series in the Sydney Morning Herald is the latest and the most sensational um, uh, publication on this. But uh, it wouldn't be actually fair to mm. Sydney Morning Herald to say that they actually can claim all the credit. Because, <laughs> again, if you look at so what Sky News has done, what uh, 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 Six Minutes, uh, 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 the current affairs program has done, and even what a ABC itself has done, you will see there is a slow um, but sure gra uh, gradual build-up of this kind of war gaming, if you like. So, I mean, it would be really uh, interesting for us, for, for you to 
talk about the research that you have been doing. I mean, you know, what have you been studying? And, and I understand you've also been looking at, at um, Chinese language, digital and social media as part of, uh, part of some of this research. Yes, yes. Um, uh, I, uh, my, I have a colleague, a uh, collaborator, Professor Hai Ching Yu and I, and uh, we have uh, um, conducted a large longitudinal study of the Chinese language, digital and social media in Australia. And we were funded by the Australian Research Council. And we started the project in 2018. And we just produced, uh, uh, published a book which came out last month called Digital Transnationalism, Chinese Language Media uh, 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 in Australia. Basically, what we wanted to find out is um, what is the connection between the Chinese language media in Australia and, and how it's connected with the uh, English language speaking uh, mainstream media in Australia on one hand and how it's connected with the so-called state Chinese media in China on the other hand. And the reason we wanted to study this is because uh, increasingly we have seen more and more arrivals from the People's Republic of China and, and the, the, the P, we call the PRC cohort, that is the migrants from the uh, People's Republic of China and the first generation migrants. This cohort uh, is becoming um, sort of becoming the more the majority demographically speaking within the, uh, the so-called Chinese Australian population in general. Nevertheless, we do not know anything about what kind of media habits um, and they have, and, uh, and, and and more importantly, how has the digitalization of uh, our consumption habit impacted on this um, on their you know on this uh, sector so we basically wanted to find out and particularly with the arrival of wechat in, since 2011 um, you know how has uh, the arrival of the digital media really changed the landscape of Chinese language media sector and how what what, what is this sector doing in enabling the people, uh, this particular cohort they're caught in the middle between Australia and China, tension and then see what they actually, uh, what this sector is doing to enable them to negotiate this kind of tension on a day-to-day basis. So that is the kind of research that we have undertaken and uh, that was published. And so, um, and I've also um, based on some of the findings from the study, have in, embarked on a, a, a separate project which only started this year, which asked a specific question as to what the Chinese language, uh, uh, not so much the Chinese language itself, but actually still working, studying this particular cohort that is Mandarin-speaking first-generation migrants from um, China, and what is the constant and the daily exposure to the China thread in the Australian's main, uh, mainstream media is doing to their sense of identity, their sense of who they are and, and who they side with, whether it's China or Australia, and finally, what is it doing to their sense of belonging to the Australian society? So that is the question that, that, that motivated me to, to start this new project and um, I'm in the right in the middle of it, and we, I have decided to, to do it in three ways. So first of all, I conducted some focus groups 
I conducted a focus group of 20 people in Sydney, and then I conducted a, a focus group in Melbourne, and I also went to Ballarat to because it's a regional place with a Chinese uh, settlement history, and so I did three focus groups, and I got a, a, a sort of a rough sense of what the sentiments were and the, and the key issues were. Then I designed a large survey, quantitative survey of 500 people, asking them. 20 questions specifically uh, about their uh, reading of mainstream Australian uh, mainstream uh, news about, particularly their coverage of China on one hand and their coverage of the Chinese Australian issues in Australia, and ask them what is it, how do you consume this kind of news, and what happens to you when you actually do uh, uh, see stories that are not fair and balanced. How do you negotiate this sense of alienation that you know that comes out of reading the mainstream news that feel that you're caught in between a rock and a hard place and not be able to do anything? And how do you uh, you know live out this sense of helplessness? Uh, so, and what is it doing to your sense of commitment to um, Australia and, and to you know your intention to stay on and being a, a, a citizen in this country? So this is about the con uh, questions that I asked in the survey, and I'm in the middle of processing this survey. And, um, and then in order to make sense of some of the interesting data or even surprising data from the survey, I'm following up this in-depth one-on-one interview with 20 people from this cohort. Um, from you know different demographic and yeah. social backgrounds and education, and ask them you know why do you think this is the case? That's really fascinating and, and such important research. I should remind you all listening. We're speaking with Wanning Sun, Professor of Media and Cultural Studies at University of Technology Sydney, about her research into Chinese Australians' um, kind of impressions and responses to current media narratives around Australia and China, and particularly the, the you know, recent talk of, of prospective war with China as well. And, and so, I mean, I'm sure you're, you're still processing and, and getting a lot of data as part of that research, but what have you heard so far from people about their challenge in, in navigating, I suppose, um, that sense of being within Australia while observing and, and taking in some of this more inflammatory reporting that we're seeing? Hmm. Uh, yes, uh, uh, I'm um, going to write up uh, the report based on the data just that came in uh, in, in June or in July. So whatever I'm going to say to you are very, very preliminary. Yeah. And, uh, you know, uh, um, but uh, I, I, it is very um, clear from the uh, uh, both interviews, in-depth interviews and the survey, that uh, we can say a few things. We can say a few things. Uh, um, uh, first of all, um, uh, just on the question of war, that there is an uh, extremely, extremely high level of anxiety and fear about this, this possibility of the war. And, and um, because for obvious reasons that, the, you know, that when the war does break, eventuate, you know, it is this community, they know, they realize all too well, they are the community that's going to be put in a very, very difficult position. And, you know, history has told them that uh, migrants from the so-called hostile nations uh, will be subject to extra sort of uh, uh, scrutiny and suspicion. And, and there was history in the, during the war, First World War and the Second World War, where the migrants from 
Italy or from Germany, and some of them were actually interned in the camp. And, you know, you hope against hope that this would not happen, but nobody's going to, <laughs> to assure them, no, this will not happen. So this is one thing that I find out that's quite, quite strong. The other thing that I find out is that people are really worried about the tendency of the media to somehow exploit this war narrative in order to sell papers, um, to drive uh, in the in traffic in, in their circulation, and, and talking about this as if it's a kind of a idle kind of speculation and, you know, after-dinner conversation. What do you reckon? China is going to war, come the invaders? Not actually thinking about that the ramifications of the, this, this actually irresponsible guesswork, if you like, on, on, on the social cohesion in, within the community and, and, and how this is going to impact emotionally and psychologically and mentally on this particular community. So that was the, the gist of uh, the kind of the, my conversation article that got published last week was about. But of course, my survey also found out a whole range of other things about, you know, um, uh, I asked people, how do you assess Australians, uh, how do you assess the accuracy of Australian media's coverage of China and the Chinese-Australian communities? And um, the, the, the level of accuracy, uh, as far as my respondents, 500 respondents uh, are concerned, is not very high. Then and I asked them, why do you think, you know, uh, you know, this is the case? And then, you know, people give me a whole range of, of, of reasons, and as is the case. And, and then I ask them, who do you think is in a better position to judge the accuracy of this kind of China reporting? And is this the Australian mainstream um, audience, or is this the Chinese people living in China, or is it you? And interestingly, this, and not surprisingly, they said, it's people like me, because I'm the Australian... Um, uh, Chinese Australians were just recently, uh, in my lifetime, I feel, you know, 20 years ago or 10 years ago, come, I came from China to Australia. So I know China. And I know Australia. And That's I, really interesting, isn't it? And I think I wonder, I mean, you know, with regards to their voice and I wonder who you're finding is interested in in their voice. Um, I mean, we just had the Aston by-election here in Victoria uh, on the weekend and the Chinese-Australian voters and, and voice seem to be very important there. Yeah. Would you would you agree that some are actually listening um, or any political party Um you know, is is listening? Well, um, interesting that you should talk about the issue of voice uh, because uh, from time to time I do get feedback. When I, whenever I publish something in the public, um, I don't get to publish the mainstream media because obviously they don't like my voice. Wow. <laughs> and it doesn't, uh, it's not very compatible with the kind of narrative. But nevertheless, when I do publish stuff in such as the conversation, which, you know, if they want evidence-based kind of uh, research-based kind of uh, uh, um, uh, arguments, um, when I do publish them and I share with uh, people in, our, in, in, in my community, and the first thing they say to me, uh, which is <laughs> quite you know, a bit of a worry, but also humbly, is that thank you so much for giving voice to us because we're so voiceless, and uh, it, it happens so. <laughs> it happens so. So regularly and predictably, and just make you just uh, uh, realize that you know there's a, a deep level of frustration that, that, that nobody's listening to them. It's not actually they don't have a voice; 
is that the, the, the mainstream do not want to listen, yeah. right? So there's a clear distinction. Because when I talk to the people who have in-depth interviews, they're extremely, extremely articulate. They know what the issues are and they know what the solutions are. But, um, um, but, but having said that, uh, they now also realized that uh, maybe the best way to exercise their rights as citizens in this country is, you know, to go back to the classic sort of, sort of citizens sort of participate, that is to vote. And not only to vote, but it's to vote in informed kind of way and it's to vote in a way that registrate, registrate their preferences. So I think people uh, in my community got encouraged from the uh, May election in 2022, last in the federal election. And uh, then they, you know, there is, you know, other elections in Victoria a few, um, you know, quite earlier this year, and there is the New South Wales election. In all these elections, uh, particularly in, in federal elections and the Victorian election, there's clear evidence that uh, electorate with large Chinese community uh, um, uh, members uh, have a, a sort of significant uh, swing from Liberal to Labour. Yeah. And, and also you can tell from the Aston election, uh, by-election, I'm not in from Melbourne, but I'm in close contact with um, people who work there, and some of them are actually volunteers. And I can tell that compared between, you know, in, in comparing the Labour Party and the Liberal Party, it seems that the Labour Party has got the message and has acted on this realisation. And their campaign uh, uh, aiming to uh, win the votes of the Chinese community have become much more active and proactive, and as a result, it seemingly seems to be more effective, whereas liberal, I personally think they still haven't got the message. I wrote a review of the Labour's liberal, I wrote a review of the Liberal's internal review uh, uh, of uh, why they lost the election. And their review basically said, oh, we, we don't, we, we, we didn't do well with the Chinese voters because the Chinese communities misunderstood us. They thought <laughs> we, we didn't like them. We, we, what really happened is that we didn't like the CCP, but the Chinese communities were not able to make the distinction yeah. between our, our criticism of CCP. In other words, they realized they have a problem, but they still didn't realize what the problem was. Yeah. The problem was indeed that they actually do think the Chinese communities were not only actually a bit under the influence of the CCP or the Labour, they're pretty dumb. You know, this is their implication. So that, that, that just shows they have a problem. sure that goes down well. <laughs> no. Look, we are, we are no. just about out of time. It's been so great having you on the show this morning to, to share some of your research. And, I mean, look, I, I, I hope that the results of this might make some well, all media outlets think more about um, how they kind of frame and package up these issues and also the kinds of voices that they have, well, the people that have employed in newsrooms and the voices they include on, you know, panel and analysis shows talking about this stuff as well because that nuance is um, so often langing, uh, lacking. Thank you so much for your time this morning. It's been great having you on Triple R. Thank you for your interest. Absolute pleasure. You're listening to a Triple R podcast. Discover more podcasts from Triple R exploring science, technology, food, books, social issues, politics, and more. To listen, hit up the Triple R website or your favourite podcast platform. 
Last week, the federal court formally recognised the native title rights of the Eastern Ma people in the first native title determination in Victoria in over a decade. Uh, the tem- determination returned rights for 8,500 square kilometres of southwestern Victoria to the Aboriginal traditional owners. Professor Andrew Peters can tell us more about it. He's an Indigenous Studies lecturer and Indigenous knowledge advocate over at Swinburne University. And uh, Andrew, it's really great to have you on Triple R. Thanks, Charlie. It's nice to be back. Uh, yeah, great. Uh, and yeah, maybe we can just go straight to, you know, where is this? What's the, where is this 8,500 square kilometres and, and what does uh, this successful native title claim mean for the traditional owners? Yeah, sure. Well, the first thing I should point out, obviously, is I'm not part of this group, um, so I'm sort of observing as an outsider, as um, a lot of other Aboriginal people are, but it's very exciting for um, you know, as, a, as an Aboriginal man and certainly as an Indigenous Studies lecturer to to see this progression that's being made, particularly in the state of Victoria. So we're talking about the area sort of um, down towards Warrnambool, so a, a range of different um, mobs that are involved that collectively are known as the Eastern Ma people. So um, I think it's towns like um, Camperdown, um, um, Tarang, Cobden, um, so it's down to the Great Ocean Road, Apollo Bay, um, sort of down the Otways, Port Campbell, um, that kind of area of Victoria, which is a very, very popular tourist destination. And it's, um, I guess, as an Aboriginal person, it's, it's nice to see that. <coughs> oh, excuse me, that um, you know the, the benefits that we know from an economic point of view that derive from tourism are now going to be spread more evenly amongst the Aboriginal people because you know most of the tourism is happening on the Aboriginal land down there. So um, the determination, you know, whilst it, in a legal sense, it, um, it can create some anxiety for non-Indigenous Australians in terms of, you know, what we might lose and we particularly focus in our world today on the economic side of these things. For us, it goes beyond that because it's about recognition of culture. You know, most of us understand that Aboriginal culture has been existing all over the country for many, many thousands of years, way before the Europeans ever came here. And this is sort of a, I guess, formal recognition that that culture and history exists, that's there, and that we need to protect it and value it uh, in the world today. And, you know, for me, that's probably the most significant thing about decisions like this, Kalia, to be honest, that, that it's a formal recognition of the value of that culture to us in the 21st century, um, and it's yeah, it's just it's fantastic news for for everyone down there. Yeah, absolutely. And I mean, even though of course um, Aboriginal people are aware of and live through that culture every day, the the ability to have that formally recognised through native title can be a very long and and difficult process. This, I, I understand, was first filed in 2012, so it's been going on for well a bit over a decade. What's kind of involved in that process and why is it that they often are so drawn out um, through the courts? Yeah, again, Dylan, I'm, I'm certainly not a legal expert and I haven't been involved in a native title claim, but I do know that the burden of proof is generally on the traditional owners to prove continuous and continual occupation and cultural occupation of the lands. And that was been, that's been sort of a, a bone of contention for Indigenous groups all over the world since Native Title began in the 90s, um, obviously with the Mabo decision, that, that the, the, as I say, the, the burden of proof has often been on traditional owners to show that they've had constant use of this land in a cultural sense. Whereas, you know, anyone who knows will understand that the colonisation very deliberately and very aggressively took that occupation and that connection to land away in many, many parts of the country. And 
Unfortunately for the for the Eastern Mar people, there, there were enough. There was enough evidence there to prove that they, you know, had that ongoing connection. But that's certainly one of the reasons why these cases take so long. Is because you know our legal system is very complex. It's very um, it's very inflexible as well, and and there's um, a lot of detail that needs to go into these claims, and a lot of work and a lot of research. Um, and of course, um, you know, we need to it needs to be done right because if they're um, if they're unsuccessful, they're very costly, and you know it can it can do sort of more damage than good, I guess. So that's part of the reason why it takes so long too. And um, unfortunately, a, a number of the elders who began this process of the Eastern Market no longer with us. Um, but, yeah, I'm sure the communities down there will be sort of honouring them and, and thanking them for their work in the beginning. But I guess it's just one of the, um, the vagaries of our legal system that you know, things generally don't happen quickly. Yeah, I mean, you mentioned already, Andrew, that it's not your country down there, but that, that this ro- ruling includes the right to camp, hunt, fish, collect plants, protect sites of, of cultural significance and ceremony. And it's sort of, you know baffling when you think about it that these things weren't as um, easily accessible until such a, a claim like this is is successful. What are the sorts of economic development opportunities that come with, with Native Title, do you know? Uh, well, not specifically, but, but in a broad sense, I would suggest that obviously tourism is, is one of the keys. But I guess the key there is that now the Eastern Ma people and all the mobs associated with them now have control over how that's represented, how their culture is represented, how it's used in a tourism sense, what visitors get to see. They can certainly determine what visitors shouldn't be able to see as well. And and I guess derive a little more um, directly the economic benefits that come along with that, whilst also being able to showcase culture, to teach culture. One of the vital things about this too is that young people down there, young, young mob down there, are able then to learn about their culture as well as being part of this process through being part of this process, I should say. So it's an it's a, it's a exercise, I guess, in cultural affirmation, cultural strength. It's also a way for them to uh, generate income, um, you know, from an economic sustainability point of view. And as I said before, to be able to determine how much of their culture and how much of their land is opened up to visitors um, as opposed to, you know, someone else coming in from the outside and making those determinations for them. Yeah, and, and what's your sense, um, Andrew, of the the positive impact of successful native t- title claims in the past? I understand um, back in uh, 2011, 2012, um, there was a previous ruling in Victoria for the Gunditjmara people, Eastern Ma as well, for sort of, you know, far west Victoria. That's sort of one of, of, of a number of examples. But do you have much of a sense of, of just what it has meant for particular groups um, once that has been sort of formally recognised through the courts? Uh, again, not, not directly, Dylan, but just anecdotally through different people that I that I know around the place. And it, it's certainly one of the things that it does, and I've, I've got that sense from the Eastern Mark case, is that it brings Aboriginal communities together. You know, it's, it can be quite difficult for that to happen. The Eastern Mark, as we mentioned before, as a corporation, is, is made up of a number of different mobs down there, and, and often it can be difficult to get everyone on the same page in a case like this, with everyone, you know, uh, I guess agreeing to the same outcomes and, and achieving the same goals and determining what those goals are. So that's certainly one of the benefits there is that they're able to bring the community together and, and they can make decisions now that benefit a broad range of people, not just, you know, one or two sections of an Aboriginal community, which have been 
which has been sort of part of a problem in the past in various parts of the country. Um, and as I said before, for me, one of the greatest things is then the young people from down there, from all the mobs down there, they get an opportunity now to see their culture being showcased, to see it being valued. And, and, you know, the shame that, you know, my generation, a lot of my generation grew up with in terms of being an Aboriginal person back in the 70s and 80s is is dissipating. I won't say it's gone away um, because we're a long way from that, but it's certainly... It's, it's reduced from what it was. And, and these kids down there now have got a wonderful opportunity to, to embrace their culture and to showcase it and to have everybody, not just their local community, but everybody see and appreciate it, which I think is one of the real benefits of these kinds of cases. Yeah, absolutely. Um, Professor Andrew Peters is with us from Swinburne University. He's an Indigenous Studies lecturer and Indigenous knowledge advocate. And we're speaking about the federal court's uh, determination over 8,500 square kilometres of southwestern Victoria, which has now been uh, returned to Aboriginal traditional owners. And, I mean, it's really just so, so wonderful to hear what you just said there, Andrew, and just also thinking about the treaty process underway here in Victoria. Do you think that with this kind of determination with, with native title, but then the treaty process is going to continue that positive feeling, particularly with, with young people? Yeah, certainly. It, it, it... The treaty process obviously is a separate thing, and that's that's got its own complications and its own uh, intricacies. So it's certainly you know cases like this don't, don't guarantee success in the treaty process as well, because that's a process that's ongoing um, as well as sort of a determination thing. Um, but it's it certainly, as, as, as you mentioned, Carly, it adds to that sense of positivity in the community, and and hopefully the broader community in these areas too are supportive of this and and understand that this isn't about taking something away from from one person. It's just about recognising our connection to that culture and that history that's thousands and thousands of years old and that it exists all around us. And the treaty process, whilst it's got its, its legislative restrictions and, and, uh, and detail around that that, that, might, um, that sort of complicate a lot of these social and cultural issues, the process itself for me is about all Australians being able to connect with this culture and this history that belongs in the land that they all call home. So, it, you know, it should be part of them too. It should become an important part of all Australians' lives. And, and I just see these, you know, as, as more positive steps um, on a very, very long road. Um, but, yeah, certainly it's it's very, very good news, yeah. Absolutely. And, I mean, I think about sort of the early years of, of native title in, in sort of the immediate aftermath of Mabo and some of those really nasty fear campaigns that were whipped up, you know, by certain politicians and sections of the media in the wake of that. Um, I mean, you know, obviously, speaking from a personal perspective, this sounds like a, a really positive news story, but is your sense at all that kind of these issues aren't maybe seen as, you know, controversial or as, um, as that, that sense of something being taken taken away but actually we all sort of do gain from these determinations and the ability for First Nations communities to you know properly fully embrace and live through their culture on country. Yeah I've got a real uh, fear of, of how the media controls the narrative around stories such as this Dylan you know the, the the voice to parliament campaign at the moment is a good example of that where you know we um, you know we want people to become informed and make their own decisions but it's it's hard when we're relying on information coming from certain places and, and being not fully aware of, of what the motivations are for those sources as well in, in some cases. But you're right, you know, there was, there was a, a, a really strong campaign of fear around Native Title when it first started and, and you know, none of that's eventuated and, and hopefully by now more Australians are understanding what the real purpose of Native Title is. And, you know, as I say, it's not to take away 
someone's private property. It's not take away something that you've worked your whole life for. It's not to take away your super or your house or anything like that. It's just about getting all Australians to understand that there's a deeper connection other than a material one. You know, material ownership isn't the only thing in our world. That, that we, we have deep connections to the land and and that the land contains culture, it contains stories, it contains spirituality that we can all become part of and connect with. And, you know, as I say to my students too, there's a, there's a disconnection in Australia between non-Indigenous Australia and our Aboriginal culture and history. And, and until we connect those, we're sort of going to come across roadblocks and fear campaigns and those sorts of things from certain people in um, particular positions of power, which is, you know, which is a shame and, and sort of scary, as I said, from my point of view, in a sense. But I certainly think we're making some positive steps and people are, are aware, particularly after COVID, I think more and more people are aware of the power of the media and sometimes the motivations of the mainstream media in particular and, and they're being able to find their own information and, and that certainly is a positive thing. And hopefully after a little while this will all balance out and we'll, we'll be able to go back to trusting all the sources of information that we get from various various places rather than, you know, being... I guess, directed to think a certain way about certain issues like this. Um, yeah, it's really great to, he to hear what you have to say, Andrew. I've got a big smile on my face. So it just feels like, we, yeah, we can celebrate um, this as as progress and and the end of a very long process for, for Eastern Ma people, um, the traditional owners that have been successful in gaining uh, rights back for 8,500 square kilometres uh, of their country and southwest Victoria. Thanks so much for um, uh, chatting with us here on Triple R this morning. Well, you're very welcome, Carly and Dylan. Thanks for having me. Thanks for listening to this podcast of Triple R's The Grapevine, a weekly current affairs radio show putting local issues in a global context. Broadcast live on Triple R from Melbourne, Australia, every Monday. Hope you enjoyed the show, and if you have any feedback or would like to connect, hit us up via the Triple R website.